You are listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Nice to have you along for the ride. This is going to be a theme show this week, and I'm excited about it. It's all about skiing and snowboarding. And if that sounds dull, you are wrong. (laughs) There is so much to talk about, and a lot of it has to do with cultural experiences, as you'll hear from my second guest. So I have two guests this show. Uh, One discusses kind of the changes coming to skiing in 2021 slash 2022, what we can expect in terms of crowds, in terms of pricing, in terms of uh, protocols for COVID. And then our second guest is the author of a lovely new book from Nat Geo. It's called 100 Slopes of a Lifetime. And he's the one who gets into kind of the, the wide variety of ski experiences that you can have, some of which include penguins, if you can believe it. <laughs> I'll just uh, I'll let that be a kind of a enticement uh, for listening to this whole podcast. Before we get to the skiing and snowboarding, though, I told you last week that I'd be making a big announcement, and so here it comes. This show is very soon going to be part of the brand new Call-In Network. What is Call-In? It's a new social podcasting app. Now, that's a strange uh, term. I think actually Call-In probably invented it. But anybody who knows the app Clubhouse knows about oral social media. So this is social media that People connect on and have conversations, but instead of typing those conversations, they're chatting in real time. And Clubhouse is a fine site, but one of the problems with it was often you'd come in in the middle of conversations or the conversations would disappear once they were over. So though there were interesting conversations going on, they didn't have a shelf life. Call-in, which has some big names behind it, is trying to solve that problem. And so what they're going to do is they'll be doing, uh, their hosts will be doing these podcasts in real time. And they've got some big hosts, uh, some really interesting talkers, including Matt Taibbi. He's my favorite of the ones they've got, but they've got more than that. Um, So they'll have really good podcasters leading discussions with guests and that will be open to call-in members. Uh, to chat. So just like when I used to be on live radio and we would take calls from listeners, there will be an opportunity for this uh, podcast to be interactive, for me to talk to you if you go to call in uh, when we are uh, recording this. But then once it's recorded, the podcast will be uh, available indefinitely on call in. And thanks to the agreement I've made with Colin, it will also be available on this site. So if you like your subscription and you don't want to go to Colin, you can keep listening here. But you also have the option to go to Colin, hear the live show, ask me your questions, uh, ask our guests your questions, and, and become part of the show. So I 
I do hope you'll listen on call in too. What we're going to do is we're going to record the show there and a week later we will play it here. So uh, there, there shouldn't be any big changes, uh, just more opportunities. So that's the big, exciting announcement. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be the next big thing. The people behind Call-In are very impressive, and they're getting a really impressive array of talkers uh, in sports, in technology, in politics, in healthcare, uh, in many different fields to share their knowledge. It's going to be really exciting. Okay. Let's get to this show. As I said at the start, it's all about downhill experiences. Well, actually, we also discuss cross-country skiing a little bit, too. And my first guest is a wonderful writer named Rachel Walker. She's a true ski expert. She lives in Colorado, and is if she's not in front of her computer creating articles, she seems to be on the ski slopes. She wrote a really good article for the Washington Post. It was called, Winter is Right Around the Corner. Are you ready for ski and snowboard season? So here's our interview. Hey, Rachel, thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for letting me uh, come on. Well, I have a question for you. At the very beginning of the article, you say that skiing and snowboarding should feel normal this year. I got to ask, what the heck does normal feel like anymore? I can't remember. What will that mean for folks going? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so last season, um, because of COVID-19 restrictions, um, most of the ski resorts in the United States is what I'm thinking of specifically since the Canadian borders were closed and people weren't traveling internationally, were mandating really strict um, precautionary measures like mandatory face masks. They were limiting the number of people who could ski on the mountain each day. Mm -hmm. And they enforced that either through um, limiting parking, requiring people to make reservations to park their vehicles at the resort or limiting um, just literally the number of people on the mountain. You had to make reservations in advance to go to the mountain and ski. And this year, uh, all of the all of the resort executives and officials I've spoken with don't anticipate unless there's a something unexpected, like another a terrible surge, variant, yeah, exactly, or government mandates coming down. They are expecting to open up the mountains in their entirety, so it will be much more similar to the 2019-2020 winter season. And when you say mask mandates, were those required outdoors as well as in last year? It really depended on uh, what resorts you were skiing, I mean, or snowboarding. They weren't, there wasn't a standard mandate across the board in, with, with throughout the entire industry. But there were, I, I'm based in Colorado and my main mountain last winter uh, during COVID was Winter Park because that's where my family skis. And there was a mask mandate the entire time, very few of the outside in the lift lines. And so these poor lifties w- had their bullhorns and were yelling at people, you know, and a lot of oh. people say, oh, it's no problem. We have our buffs. We have, you know, our faces are covered anyways. It's freezing cold. But a lot of people were might cover their chin or their mouth, but not their nose. And so the onus was really put on these um diehard ski bums who are working the lift lines to single people out and say, you have to do that. And and there was a lot of pressure on the resorts. I mean, because depending again on the state, uh, what the government's restrictions were, requirements for compliance were, 
that they could have lost their ability to operate if people Hmm. didn't comply with our mandates. Now, looking at other parts of the ski experience and what normal will mean, what about indoor dining, say, at a ski resort? Will people have to at least prove vaccination or will that also vary? You know, from what I understand and talking with sort of the industry trade representative group, people will not necessarily have to prove their own vaccination, but everyone should pack a mask in their pocket. Um, A lot of the resorts are mandating vaccinations for their employees, and you can expect to see most of the employees working at indoor dining wearing a mask. But this could change with the um, recent, with this week's, the CDC endorsing uh, vaccinations for kids 5 to 12. Um, so uh, things uh-huh. might change. But from what I understand, there won't be vaccine or vaccine mandates to eat indoors, but there could be mask mandates. And you just simply want to be prepared for that. Sure, sure. All right. From the, from the COVID news to just the kind of fun news about skiing, I think people forget what a relatively new sport it is. And so a lot of the resorts in the United States are going to be celebrating big anniversaries this year. Uh, Kind of like, you know, you you celebrate your 50th birthday, certain ski resorts are turning that age. What, What should we expect with those? Yeah, it's it's really fun. Um, there's there's so many resorts that are celebrating anniversaries um, from the 50th to I know Aspen is celebrating their 75th. Um, I don't know all of them off the top of my head. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think I think the fact that there is this return to normalcy coupled with the anniversary means that a lot of resorts are going to be organizing special events. They might have special lift and lodging deals. They might have really cool concerts or family-friendly events. And in my opinion, the best way to figure out which, you know, what events are out there that a person could avail themselves of is probably to figure out first where you want to go and then look into it. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, travel there because it's the 75th anniversary, but there's, there's certainly, I mean, ski bombs, ski, anyone who loves to ski, you don't have to be a diehard skier like to celebrate. And, and I think after feeling so, um, so limited in the past year and a half, there's going to be any excuse to party. And I don't mean like necessarily a raucous party, but any excuse to celebrate is going to be capitalized on. Beyond celebrations, will any of these carry discounts or probably not? You know, I think they will. I think, um, I think the best discounts are going to come from advanced online sales. So, you know, when you're thinking of planning a ski vacation, it's pretty much you're thinking of your lodging, your lift tickets and gear rentals if you don't own gear. And uh, hands down, the best way to get the best price is to buy in advance online for ski tickets. Um, right. And Ski School, though, will have... I think there's constantly going to be an effort and there's going to be a lot of competition among resorts to attract visitors to their resorts. Um, so it, whether or not it's affiliated with the anniversary might be difficult to ascertain, but I do know there's going to be a lot, a lot of deals and a lot of um, ski school deals. You know, typically January is learn to ski month. Huh. But what I understand from talking to industry experts is they're a lot of resorts are trying to spread out those deals. So it's not just relegated to January and so that they right. can kind of control when they get a lot more visitors. Right. Sure. Now, there's been a lot of consolidation in terms of lift tickets. 
Uh, there are two massive organizations and two slightly small, smaller ones that kind of uh, bundle together lift tickets for ski resorts all around the United States. And generally, the earlier you buy your season pass, the more you save. Is one lift ticket better than another? And how many times do you have to ski for a lift ticket to pay off in general? That is a great question. Um, you know, it's it's it would be impossible to to say whether I think you're talking about the Epic Pass, which is a product from Vail Resorts, and then the Icon sure. Pass, which comes from exactly. Oscar Mountain Resorts. And uh, to be completely honest, this year my family we bought both um, because. We're, wow. <laughs> because, we're, because we're nuts and we're also planning on skiing a ton. And some of the we're, we're going up to Canada to ski. And one of the resorts we really wanted to ski at is on the Epic Pass. Um, huh. So it just made. And, and so that's kind of a, an example. How, how many times do you have to ski for it to pencil out? Depends, obviously, on what the ticket, the, you know, the, the window ticket price is. But I believe on average ticket prices are like one hundred and twenty dollars a day. I mean, they're expensive. And yeah. so. Again, it depends when in the season you buy your your season pass, but I think I I figured it out that it was it was more economical for my family to buy an Epic Pass um, because there are discounts for children's. I have two kids, uh, myself and my husband, and that then it would have been to pay for day tickets the entire time we're in Canada. In terms of which is better, again, it really it, there isn't one. The, the the simple answer is one is not better than the other. What about the, what about what about the smaller one that goes to the kind of mom and pop resorts? I would think that just because those resorts tend to be cheaper because the hills are are yeah. lower, you know that that those that would be the best value. But you're not going to have many black diamond runs. Yeah. And it, it really depends on the kind of terrain you want. Um, sure. And and so I I love the little mom and pop ski resorts. I think that they they're so uh, genuine in some ways. They're so welcoming. People are really there because they just love to ski. But you're right. It's not going to necessarily those resorts don't necessarily have the star studded runs and terrain. They don't have big open bowls or they might they might not or they might not have really long, steep tree runs, if that's what you're interested in skiing. Um, and so, again, also, it depends on a lot of these passes or have partnerships with other resorts. For example, uh, Jackson Hole doesn't, it's, it's not part of the Icon Pass. It's not part of the Epic Pass, but it, it's a partner with the Icon Pass. So in other words, you can buy your Icon Pass. Then if your dream has always been to go to Northwestern Wyoming and ski, you get a certain number of days at Jackson huh. Hole. And so if you have like, I think a lot of people are going to be planning their big dream life list ski trips this year uh, because of, again, pent up demand or pent up desire. A sure. lot of people who didn't get out last, last, who didn't want to fly to a resort. Sure. Yes. Yes. So absolutely. I, I, I think that strategically, um, the best way to sort of capitalize on those mountains is, or on, on deciding which pass to buy is, is figure out where you want to go and then figure out what pass works for them. And do the math. You know, if you're only going to ski for three days, it's probably not worth it to buy a season pass. Huh. Okay. Good to know. Now, you just said that a lot of people, there's a lot of pent up demand. Will that mean crowded slopes? I know in your article, you write that last year was actually the fifth biggest season on record 
uh, in terms of numbers of people who hit the slopes, but that it felt like it wasn't, I guess, because people needed reservations and that allowed the resorts to more effectively space out skiers. Do you think this year is going to be crowded? I do. (laughs) I mean, I I think that it will certainly feel more crowded than last year because what happened last year is a lot of people who could moved to the mountains or, you know, they, that so whole COVID work from home Mm -hmm. response, whether they got a long-term rental or they had a second home in the mountains and that allowed them, or their kids were in online school. And so- Like yours. Yes, exactly. Like they might take an advantage and go skiing on a Wednesday morning or they would have last year and in a way that they can't this year. Sure. Um, And as a side note, as a parent, thank God we can't, like I'd so much rather my kids be in school five days a week. Of course. But but (laughs) I do think that I do- think there are going to be more crowds. I don't know if that's going to if if that's going to feel inhibitive though because it's going to feel more like normal. And so yes, right. there will be lift lines. A lot of resorts have also put in infrastructure upgrades. They've replaced maybe a slow three-person chair with a high-speed quad or a high-speed huh. six-pack. And the resorts are really cognizant of moving people around on the mountains. These are the big resorts, not not necessarily sure, sure. the smaller mom and pop ones and, and dispersing them. Um, it's actually fascinating when you kind of get a little bit behind the scenes and see how much thought and strategy goes into how to manage mountain use. Um, so, so I think that it will certainly feel more crowded than last year, but I don't think it will. I hope, you know, judging from what everyone has told me, I don't think it's going to feel like a traffic jam. Right. But I know the Farmer's Almanac is saying that it's going to be an unusually cold winter. And I just got a press release, I think from the state of Utah today, claiming that it's already been a record year for snow in October in Utah. Uh, so what do what do the ski folks think? I know you live in Colorado. Do they, they think it's going to be a year where there's going to be a lot of good dumps, or do they think that they're going to have to use the the snowmaking machines a lot this year? Is there any anybody making predictions? Definitely, and it's um, I th- it's not an either or. I mean, already the resorts that have the cold enough temperatures are making snow because even when there is significant snowfall, the artificial snow and the snow that they can make early season is essential for getting a smooth base um, on huh. on the runs. And so the snow guns are already firing. It's it's cold wow. up in the mountains. And as I understand it, and I am not a meteorologist, they're, they're <laughs> calling for a La Nina winter, uh, which generally translates into really moisture heavy storms in the Pacific Northwest and the Northern Rockies, possibly a little drier um, in the Central Rockies and and further South. Um, I don't know what it means for the East Coast, but I would love to put in a plug for skiers. There's there's a website called opensnow.com that's run by a meteorologist named Joel Gratz, who lives in Colorado, who is um, a diehard weather nerd. And this is entirely, it's, it's a forecast for mountain conditions. Um, and you can, it's, it's whether or not you've checked it, it's, it's really, really a wonderful resource. And it's what I always go to before I head up to the mountains to see what the forecast is because mountains 
are so notorious for making their own weather. So it's, you know, what's happening in the central mountains of Colorado might be completely different than what's happening in the northern mountains of Colorado or the southwestern ones. Um, so, you know, big picture, I think people are hoping for huge dumps, particularly in the northwest and northern Rockies because of La Nina. But I... Um, that's that's about as far as my knowledge goes. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, it was a fascinating article. I learned something a couple of years back. My family went skiing and I had always borrowed my mother-in-law's gear. <laughs> and uh, this year I went on to, or that year was four years ago now, I went on to Facebook and borrowed a friend's snow gear, but you can rent that. I knew you could rent skis, but I had no idea you could rent long underwear and, you know, and, and waterproof clothing. I, what? How long has that been around? Do you know? I th- it's relatively new. I think it's great. I didn't know that either until a friend of mine from Florida told me about it um, two years ago because, you know, I... I ski all winter. I've always skied. And so when she told me, oh, yeah, my, I brought my family out west and we went on a vacation. I rented all of our gear. I thought that was fascinating. And what's so cool, you know, at first I kind of cringed. I was like, really? You're going to wear underwear? That's interesting. <laughs> but, um, but no, it's it's completely sanitary. Uh, these These companies are following the same model of stitch fix and or maybe not stitch fix, but the rent, you know, sure. the, the clothing rental. The runway. Awesome. That's, yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so I think it's just fabulous because this stuff is so expensive. And if you're not yeah. going to use it on a regular basis, it makes a lot of sense to rent it in advance. And it's bulky. You know, my friends in New York who live in tiny apartments don't have anywhere to sure. store gear when they're not using it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's such a helpful, wonderful article. Once again, it was in the Washington Post. Thank you so much, Rachel, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Our next guest is Gordy Megro. He's another skier. He's another ski writer. In fact, he has a gorgeous book out. It's from National Geographic. It's called 100 Slopes of a Lifetime, The World's Ultimate Ski and Snowboard Destinations. Hey, Gordy. Well, first of all, congratulations and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you. And thanks for having me. So you start out the book by talking a little bit about your own uh, history with skiing. And I, I thought mm. it was instructive because a lot of non-skiers don't realize how varied the experience can be. So can you share a little bit of how you started and, and what the differences you found when you when you left the East Coast were? Yeah, I grew up in Vermont um, and uh, I grew up uh, actually about 10 minutes from three different ski areas, Stratton Mountain, Bromley, and Magic Mountain. Um, and uh, I, I spent most of my time at Stratton. Uh, I was about two years old, a little older when I started skiing between my father's legs. Wow. And um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, ended up uh, uh, ski racing, um, which was pretty big thing to do up in Vermont. Sure. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, there was a trail that I loved. I would go to 
go ski it um, whenever I had the chance at my home mountain at Stratton called Liftline. I thought it was a great trail. I still think it's a great trail. Um, it had a sort of a little bit of everything, um, uh, you know, some nice steeps and some uh, dips and jumps if you were so inclined. And um, I love that trail. And then I don't know, I, I was probably, I don't know, 14 or so when I um, got to go out and ski in Utah. And I was just blown away because it's a completely different experience. What While East Coast skiing is great, um, you know, with the perfect groomers and, um, you know, some, some challenging terrain, uh, Utah had this, you know, I was fortunate to hit it during a storm and, and Utah was just, it was a powder paradise. It just, you know, the snow never stopped. And I was skiing, uh, uh, snow that was over my head at times. And it was just this otherworldly experience for me as a kid growing up on the East coast. Yeah, it really can be a very different physical experience. Bizarrely enough, I I, I learned to spe- ski from my husband. Uh, so I didn't ski until I was in my late 20s. And uh, I've only skied on the East Coast and in Austria, <laughs> strangely <laughs> well, <not> enough. <laughs> no, and Austria was so different. It really was like a different substance that the, the snow felt like a whole different beast. I, I, I did terribly in Austria, actually. It was, it was a little scary for me because it was so heavy and thick and deep and uh, just a totally different experience than the icy runs I've taken in the East Coast. It, it really is interesting when you ski from place to place, how different the consistency of the snow is. Um, there's, I actually wrote about Alta Snowbird in this book, Snowbird too, but um, Alta, Alta uh, in, in Utah and also Snowbird is what I meant sure. to say. Um, and Utah, you know, on their license plates, it says greatest snow on earth. And there actually is um, a little bit of science to that. Uh, uh, there were there uh, some studies uh, done by uh, snow scientists that showed that the consistency of the snow in Utah and the way it falls um, it sort of starts warmer and gets colder, huh. uh, actually does make that a, a real, pretty ideal powder skiing consistency. Isn't um, that fascinating? Wow. Yeah, whereas, never... You know, if you ski somewhere in California or, or the, anywhere on the Pacific coast, uh, you, you get a heavier snow. It's a little bit harder to ski. Right. And one of the nice things about your books is it shows not only the variety of snow and mountains and landscapes, but you can have actual cultural experiences when skiing that that elevate the experience. Uh, like like in Japan, where you ski into a, a hut that has whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that was actually something that I did. So I I'd skied at Rizutsu and. Uh, skied down one of the trails uh and japan by the way is is similar to utah the the snow consistency is a lot alike and um uh it was uh it when i was there it just didn't stop snowing um and and that's the experience that a lot of people who ski in japan have and um i skied down this trail it was toward the end of the day it was actually getting dark out um and we 
skied uh, a little bit off piste and um, came down. And uh, yeah, right at the bottom, there was this cool little um, bar that uh, had Japanese whiskey and uh, all sorts of Japanese favorites. Like uh, every, every place has these giant bowls of ramen that I would eat two or three times a day when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a real ski scene. Actually, my daughter uh, took a gap year and ended up working uh, on Hokkaido uh, oh, at yeah. a ski resort uh, for about a, a month of that time. Had a ball, met skiers from all over the world. I mean, people who love skiing know about Japanese skiing. But in Italy, there is a restaurant in the middle of a run. Am I yeah. getting that right? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, you're, well, you're actually so you're actually skiing from Switzerland, um, from the Zermatt side to the Slovenia side, and wow. um, and you. Do you need to uh, carry a passport if you're not an EU citizen? You can probably get away without it, but it's a good <laughs> idea to carry a passport. It honestly, you know, because you, you might end up in Italy and and needing to get back to Switzerland the long way, right? Uh, rather than ski back, so uh, it's not a bad idea to carry a passport. Um, the uh, but yeah, along the way, uh, once you cross uh, into Italy, um, uh, there are some great restaurants all the way down uh, a lot of these trails, um, and you can, you know, it's as people say that you, you want to stay in Switzerland on the Swiss side because they have the best hotels, but you want to ah. do all your eating in Italy. <laughs> you also surprised me in this book with places that I, I never would have thought there was skiing, like Antarctica. How yeah. the heck do you ski in Antarctica? Well, first you have to take a boat from Argentina. Um, huh? but uh, Through the Drake Passage, which is one right. of the bumpiest passages on Earth. Crazy. That's right, yeah. So you and then you uh you know these are these are obviously guided trips. You 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 wouldn't sure. it would be tough for you to go ski Antarctica on your own, but um uh yeah, it's uh, uh kind of turns into a party on that boat uh as you're crossing uh the Drake Passage. Uh and uh you end up in Antarctica and there's all sorts of uh uh obviously it's you know it's a big block of ice so you can sure go to ski uh all sorts of different mountains and lots of different kinds of terrain there's a, actually a little little something for everyone in antarctica well you you always point out what the best run is and i love the name of the antarctic run it was the north face of sex troll <laughs> how did that who came up with that so the guides name all these trails and um you know the guides can be a little bit off color so uh they uh i you know yeah when i was asking them what what they what their favorite trail in antarctica was and they told me that i i said come on really guys there's not something a little bit more family friendly that we can put in the book <laughs> and they said no this is really the best trail down here so <laughs> all right and uh the upcoming olympics in china there's a backstory to how they're going to do skiing there that's fascinating. Yeah, well, they had to um, obviously create a ski area because there's yeah. not, <laughs> not really skiing uh, outside of Beijing. Um, and it's, uh, it's a warmer climate, so they're going to have to uh, make a lot of snow. But they did, a, yeah, they, they made that ski area uh, by... Um, having to remove a lot of trees, but instead of cutting them down, they 
uprooted them and put them in different places. So huh. it was a little bit uh, of a greener way to uh, create a ski area. And uh, uh, which is obviously, you know, that's good for China because they're not so well sure. known for things like that. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the trail was the, the uh, men's Olympic downhill trail was designed by Bernard Rusi, who's um, done uh, Olympic tracks all over the world, uh, World Cup tracks all over the world. And he really likes this one. He's high on it. He says it's one of his favorites. So it should be a good race in the men's downhill. And then, you know, we'll have to watch Michaela Schifrin because I think she's going to ski uh, five different events and has a chance of meddling in all of those. Wow. That'll be amazing. That'll be amazing. You also discuss a type of skiing I've never heard of before in the cross-country skiing chapter. I'm talking about crust skiing in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. What is that? Well, crust skiing uh, is something that happens in various parts of the world, but Alaskans are really way into it. It's when it gets warm enough during the day that the top layer of the snow freezes. Um, and then at night, uh, I'm sorry, that the, the top layer of the snow melts. And then at night it freezes. So huh. if you get out there early enough in the morning, you're skiing along this, you know, glazed sheet of fairly forgiving ice. It's sort of like uh, sticky enough that you can push off on it. Um, so, uh, you use skate skis, not the traditional um, diagonal stride Nordic skis, huh. but you're you're sort of just like skating all the way across these huge open glaciers in Alaska. Um, and, uh, you know, people, Keegan Randall, who I spoke to about it, who is obviously a, a great champion and Olympic gold medalist uh, and grew up in Anchorage. She told me that it's, she calls it hero skiing because it just makes everybody feel like they're a champion skier. Yeah, it sounded remarkable. It sounded wonderful. You also shine a spotlight on, and I hope I'm going to pronounce it right, the Metho Valley in Washington, another cross-country skiing uh, experience. And I, I love the idea of, of hut-to-hut skiing in the U.S. It just sounds like a, a ball. Yeah, you get to um, ski along the Metho Valley, which is a, obviously a beautiful valley in Washington. Um, uh, incredible views all over the place. But um, yeah, along the way, they have this hut system and you can book the huts and stay in various huts. Uh, so, you know, sleep over. Um, you can carry stuff with you or they actually have services where they'll bring um, food and, and whatever else you need to the huts for you. And so, those um, ski mobiles will carry your luggage if yeah. you want them to. You have to pay extra right. for that, obviously. That's, that's right, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it's a nice service. It's, I think it's 125 miles of uh, connected trail. So you could spend a, a good week out there if you wanted to. Yeah. Now, you you divide the book into intermediate, advanced, and expert skiing. What's the difference between advanced and expert? Uh, it's, I'd say it's slight, um, but the expert trails are really trails that you really need to be a, um, you know, a very, very uh, skilled skier to to make it down. So we're talking about trails, some of which were 40 to 50 degrees in slope. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, some of these trails are also backcountry runs. So um, you would need to 
have a guide and or or really know what you're doing in the backcountry and bring the, sure. the right equipment and have a plan and a partner and and execute everything perfectly so that you stay alive. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think is the, can you pick one slope out of the hundred that if you had to tell maybe an advanced skier or an expert skier, this is the one slope you have to do before you die? Uh, Which one would it be? I think that um, the one that I keep dreaming about is is, uh, in Engelberg, Switzerland, and it's called Laub. And um, it's this like 4,000 vertical foot descent, uh, 35-ish degrees in pitch, um, and they get a lot of snow. So uh, when it is a powder day, it feels like you're just endlessly floating down this trail. Wow. Oh, it sounds amazing. And you also got to, in this book, I love the fact that the foreword is by Lindsay Vaughn. How great. Were you... Did you get to speak with her or did she simply write this on her own? No, I, I asked her if she would do it. I had the, the um, fortune of uh, profiling her for Ski Magazine several years ago. So we had a bit of a relationship and um, I she was the first one on my list and I thought it would maybe be 50-50 that she would do it. And she was, yeah, she was excited to do it right off the bat. So um, I showed her a lot of the trails that were going in the book and she was, uh, pretty psyched on them or seemed, yeah. you know, so she was, uh, she was happy to do it. And she had, uh, some really fun stories about growing up in Minnesota and, uh, the little hill that she grew up on and the, the trail that she would sort of, uh, so she called it her, yeah. her, her, her first favorite trail. It's a it's a charming forward about how she didn't at like skiing at first. I mean, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. her mind changed, but she had yeah. a father who was a ski champion. So yeah. I guess she was destined to ski. Well, many, many congratulations, Gordy. And thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's it for this week's show. Since Thanksgiving is next week, I'm taking the week off. So no show next week, but then the week after that, we will be back. And to those who are traveling, I know a lot are for the holidays. As always, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you in December. Watching K-